Welcome to the Process Podcast. This is a show for creators and makers and founders who struggle to manage the ups and downs of a creative life, despite the positive impact they make on our world. I'm Marcela Chamorro, your host, an executive coach specializing in empowering leaders within people-first teams like FICO, Magellan Health, GitLab, Doist, and more to maximize performance, but also well-being. I continue that work as fractional CMO to mental health tech teams, and I put out online courses like Courageous Conversations, which is all about mastering even the most difficult interactions. On each episode of this podcast and all the other work I do, whether it's coaching, marketing, writing my newsletter, or creating courses, you'll notice that mental health is what drives me. And on the Process Podcast, you'll listen to interviews with successful entrepreneurs, authors, founders from all walks of life who tell their stories and share what has worked for them, including how to avoid burnout, when to put themselves first, what advice to follow when making a big life or business change, and more. Get ready to dive deep into topics such as community, coaching, psychedelics, successes, and failures and all sorts of tools, habits, and systems that can help you improve your performance, but also your well-being. On this very first episode of the reboot of the Process Podcast, I'm bringing you an interview with David Spinks, community expert and best-selling author of the book, The Business of Belonging. This conversation will go in unexpected directions into what David is working on next and how he looks at community differently these days instead of top down, but from the bottom up instead. Here's my conversation with David. Well, I'm um, grateful for you inviting me and for all your thoughtful responses to my newsletter. <laughs> I, I definitely hope I do not um, overdo it, but I, as a newsletter not creator, I enjoy getting feedback yeah. It's the best. And so I like to please, give please it. keep doing it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it can be lonely, you know. Sometimes people respond, sometimes they don't. Um, it's very lonely, and so it's nice to get something back. So I try to like the newsletters that I do read, which are, are not that many because there's so many out there. You got to pick and choose, right? Yeah, I'm like there's a person behind that. I'm gonna make sure that I correspond to that effort mm -hmm. that went in. Like today, I really enjoyed your your newsletter on because I'm not feeling well, I was in bed and I was reading more <laughs> <laughs> of like the, the seven things of why content, how community overserves like uh, versus content. And I, I really enjoyed that, that perspective. But anyway, I would love to jump in with, can you tell me a little bit about why community for you? What's the thing that kind of pulled you in and has kept you roped in for so yeah. long with community? I wish I knew. <laughs> Got to talk to my therapist about. It. I'm looking for a therapist. Maybe that'll be our first question. Why community? Um, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, it's hard to pin down one. You know, I I struggled with finding connection and belonging at a young age. But both my parents were immigrants. I was born a year after they moved to the U.S., and so we didn't have an established community and network. We didn't have roots where I grew up. So it's interesting. You don't perceive that when you're a kid. You don't perceive everything that happened to your parents before you were born, right? You only know them from that point on. And so that was just normal life to me. I didn't, I don't think I really understood that they were building their roots. They were, 
building their community from the ground up when I was born. And other people don't have that same experience. A lot of people, when they're born, um, their parents are already fairly well connected in their community yeah. and they have family around them. I had very little family around us beyond my immediate family. And so we also came from a different culture. So like the culture in my home was different than the culture I found in most other people's homes. And, and so um, I had struggled to find belonging despite being an extrovert, uh, which I recently learned doesn't mean I enjoy interacting with other people more than introverts. What it means is I need more interaction with people in order to feel whole in order to find balance. Literally, it's a chemical imbalance in our bodies when we are not getting the social interaction that we expect or we crave. And so I really craved connecting with lots of people and spending lots of time with people, but found myself excluded often. And I just, I remember watching very closely to people who seemed really good at connecting with others, people who are popular or funny or disconnected in some way and i would analyze the details of literally like how their eyes moved how they smiled the timing of their jokes um just trying to understand what makes somebody good at connecting with other people and i think i just internalized that over time and became pretty good at it myself by the time i got to college i was really good at connecting with people and I was the kind of guy that was connected with all the groups. I liked being friends with everybody. I didn't like to be just, you know, stuck or committed to one group. I liked bridging all these different people. And um and I think it was around that time I started becoming really fascinated with social media. Um I, I was online. I found community online at an early age as well, because when I didn't find it in person, I like turned how to video early? games. Like, like I was school. early. Like middle school, so I was yeah, live journal. Before that, though, IRC, um, yeah. you know, IRC chats. I, I played video games online, and and IRC was how we talked aside from the video game. And so I was thirteen, fourteen years old, and I was very comfortable talking to strangers online way before that was a normalized thing. And so, you know, I think I just I came up in the social media generation. I was very comfortable with it. I craved interacting with other people and it's just turned and maintained this deep curiosity that i have for how and why people connect with each other um and so i spend most of my time these days researching and writing about human connection and belonging and community it's what i've done for work for over 15 years um and I, I just took a year-long sabbatical, and I thought I would come back and do something else. You know, people change their path after a nice long sabbatical. I was like, maybe I'll be an artist or a farmer or, you know, just do a completely different kind of business. And I'm just, I'm still really curious and fascinated by community and human connection. And that's still the rabbit hole I've been diving down. Yeah, you know, it, it really resonates with me what you said about online community at an early age. I, for one, was obsessed with a boy band. So it wasn't video games for me. It was NSYNC. And nice. so I was enmeshed in like the, 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 the message boards and like all that stuff around NSYNC. And so my friends would make fun of me back then. Like you have friends online. 
I still have friends online, but now it's David and we're talking about community and how to create community and feel socially connected and all these different things. But I started building that muscle and making online friends um, very early. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is something that has served me. Well, when you talk about studying others and their, you know, how they move their eyes, how they time their jokes, et cetera, is that something that like you use for yourself only, or is that something that you also bring into your working community? Like, I feel like if you created a course on how to connect with others, I'd be like, I took heart, you know, um, <laughs> because I know statistically speaking, there's what, like, I think the Surgeon General called an epidemic of loneliness, right? Like, mm -hmm. this is something that a lot of people struggle with in an ongoing way to the detriment, not only of their jobs, which, like, I know for you, community is a job. Like, it's, it is a real, um, a real necess necessity to your family. But for others, also, like, this building of communities is their social fabric, right? Like, how do you envision after the sabbatical the direction in which you're going to take this? And that, that free idea, you could just take it, consider it, see if you, if you, you <laughs> I've know. thought about it. Yeah. 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 Um, there's actually a, a really amazing creator named uh, Vanessa Van Edwards. Uh, she was a psych called the science of people. And that's what she does. She like teaches, um, you know, literally like how to frame your eyes, how to use humor, uh, how to connect with people and how to develop your own natural charisma. Um, and I think, I think it's really valuable. It's, it's, it's something that people are almost losing that skill a little bit. I think we were already losing it before COVID. And I think being in lockdown and being separated from being in person with people, <laughs> there's a little bit of awkwardness for a lot of people now when they come back together for the first time. Um, what it makes me think of is, all right, you and I came up in trying to create connection online, right? Um, using LiveJournal, IRC, like all of these early community tools. But nowadays, youngsters are now just scrolling and posturing. And maybe that's not the only thing they're doing, but that is the entry point to like their technology. Right. And so it makes sense to me that, that we would lose more and more of that ability to create connection, not just online, but also in person. There's so many things have changed so rapidly in the last, you know, 10 years, but even less, like even five years. Like the way we connect is, is evolving so quickly. It's at the speed of innovation, the same way microchips get more and more efficient, like the way we are interacting is changing that rapidly. And these like prehistoric brains of ours aren't wired for managing a social media feed, right? Like, you know, we have the Dunbar's number that we can hold 150 people in our mind comfortably. And yet we're interacting with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And we're used to having conversations with people in closed rooms face to face where like the max amount of people who can hear you might be a few hundred. And now we express an opinion on Twitter and it's going out to literally the entire world and thousands of people will look at it and compare it to their own experience and say, well, that's not true because of my edge case. And, and it's causing people to fight and argue and feel like at odds with each other. And so I think the extent to which social media and the internet 
is driving this loneliness epidemic, um, which, by the way, I've been looking into a lot and trying to validate that the numbers are actually increasing, and they they are. Like our rate of loneliness, our rate rates of suicide, rates of depression, rates of disconnect are are increasing, and um, we're it's we're not going to find out what the impacts of the internet are on this on loneliness for a long time because it's happening so so quickly. And it's hard because it is a double-edged sword. On one hand, the internet empowers us to connect with people that we otherwise never would have been able to. Like you and me right now. Like you and me, like me on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater in middle school. Like, you know, like the gay kid who is living in a small town in rural America and doesn't know a single other gay person, but then they can go online and find a community of people who understand them and accept them and tell them, that they should be proud of who they are. That's not something people were able to do before the internet. You only had access to the people around you. And if those people didn't accept you, if you didn't belong there, tough luck. Um, And so that's, to me, the beautiful side of what the internet has enabled us to do in terms of human connection. But the other side of that sword is this mass connection, this comparison, this uh, division, uh, this creating for an algorithm rather than creating for an individual person um is this disconnect and even this this shift to virtual conversations the fact that you and i are having this conversation right now and we can't make eye contact we're only using two of our senses right our sight and our hearing we can't touch we can't smell we can't heat we can't you know feel vibrations we can't also hear what's happening in a room around us. Um, and the fact that we can't make eye contact literally is having a different impact on our brain because chemicals are released when you make eye contact with someone. Mm-hmm. When you're in person with people, your brain, there's new research now that your brain waves actually start syncing up. The more connected you are with somebody, the more in sync your brain waves will be. Your, your hormone levels start to, uh, to equalize with other people around you. There was a study I just heard about about a rowing team where they tracked their hormone levels as they got into rowing together and they all started to um to uh sync synchronize as they as they continue to work together in synchronized motion and so there's all these things that we can't necessarily we're not conscious of but we're not experiencing when our interactions are moving more into a virtual space and away from a physical space yeah and I'm curious where you see it going in the future. Like if you could, in what direction would you push community? And coming out of the sabbatical, coming out of taking some time to, and I realized that you were writing the whole time. Um, you write your newsletter on community and all topics adjacent to community. You've had some time to like really reflect, right? Mm-hmm. Take a step back. Now that you're getting back in, what direction would you drive? community if you could yeah i think there's a few ways that we can combat the loneliness epidemic um one is to build better communities um but i think what i've learned is that just building community isn't enough and i think for community builders we can learn how to better help people connect and form meaningful relationships Um, because there's a lot of communities that you can participate in you know, you can spend hours in a community and still feel alone and disconnected. And so for community builders, how can we 
enhance our community's ability to make people feel truly connected. Um, I think introducing more community programs and spaces into the world, uh, you know, I think we're lacking third spaces. If you, if you want to meet with people today, you can basically go drink alcohol or it's about it. Even coffee shops, people are just sitting there on their laptops for the most part. So I'm really starting to appreciate spaces that are intentional about, uh, about facilitating community in the real world. And so that's one level, right, is how we build communities and community spaces. Um, level two is on a, a policy level. So I think there are policies that um, we want to see from our government that really invest in and encourage social, social health. Um, and, and, and then there's the third level, which is the individual level. How do we teach people how to improve their own social, social health or what I've been calling social fitness, right? We talk about physical fitness, seems obvious, right? We want to get healthier, great. We go to the gym, we work out, we exercise, we go for a run, we improve our physical fitness. Recently, we've started to finally normalize the idea of mental fitness and mental health, okay? So we have challenges mentally, we can go to a therapist, we can join groups, we can read content that helps us improve our mental health, um, our mental fitness. Um, well, social fitness is equally as important as physical health and your mental health. Um, it, there are some studies that even show that it's it's as important as food and water. Like literally, the impact on our physical health of loneliness is is that high. Um, and interestingly enough, our brain uses the same um, receptors and the same craving that we have for food and water is the same exact part of the brain that craves connection. And actually, I was just hearing, I just heard this study on uh, the Huberman Lab podcast where they did a test where they socially isolated a group of people and then they showed them pictures of uh, various things, people, um, objects, food, and their craving for food increased when they were socially isolated. Wow. And then vice versa, they had people fast, not eat for a while. And they found that people, when they, were, when they weren't able to eat, when they didn't have the food that they needed, they actually started craving social connection because it's the same exact part of the brain that tracks those things and releases dopamine when we are craving those things. Isn't Huberman like amazing? It's just if I could Unbelievable. Uh, download those episodes straight to my brain, but there's so it's like a fire hose of information. I know. And it's like an entire full-time job to to decipher what to sort it out and yeah. synthesize and process it. Um, he's great. Yeah. He's great. He's so great. um so that's all to say that th this is so important to our physical health. And I, I think probably the biggest gap that I'd like to push and I'd like to see filled is this shift where people start taking their social health as seriously as they do their mental and their physical health. And we start to give people the tools, the education, the spaces, the processes that they can follow to improve their social health. Well, I have one habit that I rely on in terms of my social fitness. I'll share it with you, but I'm curious about what suggestions you would have. So on my calendar, I have every Wednesday, I've realized that I look at my, my entire week. I'm like, I need some connection in here. I know that every other Tuesday um, night, I am um, 
going to be a prayer group with my husband and we get together with a few other couples and we have a great mm-hmm. time. Um, but the, on the weeks where that is not present, I have a spot in my calendar on Wednesday for lunch. And it says lunch with and then question mark, question mark. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, who am I going to? I just got to fill that slot. But I need to see somebody that I'm mm-hmm. close with, that I care about, that cares about me um, mm-hmm. in order to fill my cup. Have you read that book yet with your kids? Fill- Which one? It's, um, I think it's called Fill My Cup. And it's about how everybody, I might have the title wrong. I'll share the link with you later, but it is one of the best children's books that ever existed. Amazing. It is, everybody carries around an invisible bucket. No, it's still mm-hmm. my bucket. That's what it is. Everybody carries around an invisible bucket full of like their feelings. And when, and your job is to help fill other people's buckets with positive mm-hmm. feelings. Mm-hmm. And when you do something mean, you are dipping into somebody's bucket. Mm-hmm. And so what this book describes for children very like, um, viscerally is that when you think that you are dipping into somebody's bucket, like saying something mean, that you're going to fill your own, but actually, no. Mm-hmm. When you dip into somebody's bucket, you're emptying your own as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a really easy way for kids to understand. You know, I just yesterday, my six-year-old came up to me, gave me a hug and said, I love you. And I was like, thanks, people. And asked me, I filled your bucket. And I was like, yes, you did. <laughs> so they remember it. That's um, awesome. I'm buying that book honestly, today. <laughs> it, it helps adults as well. So for I was going to say, I know a few adults who could use that book. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, all right, I know that around midweek, I need my bucket to be to top up, you know? And so I have that slot in my I calendar. love that. I'm going to start sending what, that book to any trolls who comment on my posts. Uh, what other habits or suggestions do you have for people in terms of social fitness? Yeah, I mean, it's, frankly, it's still a topic I'm learning a lot about. I've spent 15 years focused on community, which is very top down. How do I, how do you create spaces for people to connect? And it's kind of the first time I'm really digging into bottom up. Like, how do you, how do you find that social health for yourself? One really interesting study that I read found that a stronger predictor of your satisfaction, your your health, your happiness, um, isn't just the depth of connection. Actually, depth of connection was less compared to having what they called a portfolio of interactions. So interacting with people at different depths, of different types of connections, of different types of identities throughout the day. And so they basically like studied, they researched people who um, only spent time with their friends and compared it to somebody who spent less time with friends, but like had really good passive conversations with neighbors. Um, you know, got to say hi to people at the grocery store that worked there, mm-hmm. um, participated in a volunteer group, um, you know, ha- had some good connections at work. And so it's, it's actually this like diversity of interactions, this portfolio of interactions that has a really strong impact on your your feelings of social health. Um, and so a simple thing is just like saying hi to your neighbors, right? It's just looking for small interactions throughout the day. I, th- I think it's a myth that a lot of people believe that in order to solve loneliness, I need to like have these really deep friendships and connections. That's certainly part of it. But um, I think you can actually have a pretty big impact on your social health by looking for those small wins. Yeah, I think it's... It's very um, surprising sometimes when you go to a gym for a few weeks and people start saying hello and good morning. 
and see you later. And that's it. And suddenly you realize, why does that feel so good? We mm-hmm. didn't have like a deep conversation, but yeah. it somehow translates to I matter or something along those lines. Um, yeah. And I just finished uh, this book. I'll show it to you. Nonviolent communication. It's a classic. Yeah. And what I really enjoyed about this book is just the the emphasis on being heard mm-hmm. and you don't have to have a 30 minute long philosophical conversation with somebody to hear their pain or for them or to provide that empathy right mm-hmm. um and so that resonates with what you're saying with it's not so much depth it's really I mean, when you said portfolio and then i thought to myself diversification i'm like this I guess this is this is a common theme where you can't put all your eggs in one basket, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because mm-hmm. on the other side of things, connection we're human and we are built for connection. And at the same time, connection is difficult to maintain. There Absolutely. are going to be broken connections. Yeah, um, it's a constantly and- shifting reality. You might move, people move, their life changes, their priorities change. They might have kids. So yeah, you have you can't become too reliant on one relationship. It's actually pretty risky from a you know a social perspective. And I, um, I find that it's those those breaks in connection for whatever reason that make it more difficult for people to create new connections. You know, mm-hmm. I know somebody who tends to not have many friendships when uh, when this person dug into the reasons behind it. All went back to like a broken connection with a friend in grade school. You know what mm. I mean? Like, so there's, it, it's almost about resilience in terms of connection as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, frankly, like a lot of people should go to therapy if they're really struggling with loneliness because it can help them unpack where things might've happened in their past that have led them to maybe not have the same level of trust in other people and not be as open to new connections. Um, they they might have habits that are pushing people away in in some ways. So um, I think, yeah, so much of our social connection starts with ourselves and knowing ourselves and learning how to love ourselves despite how other people may treat us. And yeah. um, I know that's certainly something I've struggled with in my life. I'm, I'm curious as to how this relates to your previous chapter in community and tech startups and mm. um events and writing books like what is the next phase of community for you look like in terms of like the public facing i realize right now you're doing a lot of research and, and you're digging into this bottom up approach mm-hmm. what are you thinking of putting out um yeah I, I don't know you know it's that's that's uh i think you and i had a chat about that over email on one of my newsletters where I shared that like there's a number of paths that I can see in front of me and I'm not sure exactly which one to take um you know I'm still interested in the business of community um I think less so like branded communities like a big company launching a community around their product and more about people who are building community as a business as a product because I think that actually has a pretty profound impact on people's ability to find connection um, is like we said earlier, if there are more communities, more meaningful communities. And I think for community builders to figure out how to make that a career and something they can be 
compensated for and feel financially secure in their work building community is really important. So I've been enjoying working with community founders and helping them understand how to monetize and grow their communities and grow engagement in their communities. Um, personally, I, I'm, I'm just really enjoying writing right now and doing this research. And that might just be the thing. Like it does that there's a path where that leads me to something else. Maybe I write the newsletter and I discover a product I want to launch or a team I want to join, or I launch other products and I market it through the newsletter. But I, I really love writing. I love teaching people. I like reading lots of different research papers and books and trying to synthesize that information into something concise and entertaining and fun to read that um, can teach other people those concepts. And so that's that's what I'm doing for now is I'm putting one foot in front of the other and just continuing to write and create. Um, I'm consulting with a number of clients that, you know, that, that helps me financially and gives me a window into different kinds of communities. Um, and we'll see where it takes me. Like my writing has already led to some really interesting conversations with people who are attacking the loneliness epidemic from different angles, um, who maybe those are people I end up working with or partnering with or doing research on their behalf. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm just following my curiosity right now. Yeah. Somebody actually submitted this question and uh, I wanted to make sure I get it in front of you because I'm, I'm very curious about the answer. Especially regarding you, can someone build community for an audience that they don't personally belong to? So, like, I, mm. I was thinking when they asked that question, I was like, "Yes, I will. I will definitely ask David that question." But it also came to mind right now when you were saying that you're working with community founders, community mm. builders. Um, how how does that work? If are all these people personally a part of the communities? that they are founding. And I don't mean just like participating in the community. I mean, heart, body, and soul part of that community. Yeah. Almost all of them are. I, I have a, I can't even think of someone who successfully built a community business for an identity that they don't have themselves. Yeah. Right. The, the most successful community founders are solving their own problem. They've, they felt lonely and isolated around a topic and they wanted people to talk to about it. And so they created that space. It's very hard to build a community just because it's a business opportunity. If you or a leader in that community isn't of that community, um, it's hard to gain the trust of those people and like make them feel like you truly understand them and that you have skin in the game. You're, this, this phrase was ruined recently by Shamath, but uh, you know, you're in the arena <laughs> with them, right? Um, and uh it's 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 hard it's not impossible i think I, I would also break down building community into its parts um you have the like traditional leadership role where you know you are leading the community people are coming to interact with you to some degree you're facilitating you are really um you know motivating people and pushing them forward i think that's hard to do unless you're of the community um, but you can also be in service to a community. So if there's a community that already exists and you want to come in and um, help it and support it, you can absolutely do that without having prior experience because you're really just coming to fill up their buckets, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're just coming to help them and look for those opportunities and you can learn about the topic and 
um, hopefully you can cultivate a genuine curiosity for it. I think if you don't feel curious about it yourself, it's going to be really hard to fake that. Um, and then there's also community operations, a little bit more behind the scenes. Like how do you um, scale up a community? How do you measure it? How do you automate different processes? How do you um, create process documents? How do you improve uh, the onboarding experience? Things like that. And that's absolutely someone, anyone with community experience can do because um, it's less about the specific topic per se and more about um, the systems behind the community that make it run smoothly. Which is your favorite part of all that? You kind of outlined all the things that go into community or kind of by the backbone. I'm, I'm definitely fall more into the leader bucket. Like I like building new things from the ground up and I like bringing people around me who are also very curious about the thing that I'm curious about. Um, you know, I started CMX with that. I, CMX was a conference in the community that I wished existed. And so started it. And over time, it grew and it became a real business. And I found myself doing more operations. And I learned how to do that. I learned how to be an operator. And I, I became pretty good at it. But um, I got pretty exhausted by it by the end and, you know, started to crave um, creating again and, you know, paving new paths. I, I think that's just where I, find the most joy so that that's my personal lane that i found myself going down yeah and now we've we've talked about the loneliness epidemic mm -hmm. what other lane are you what are the what other topic is really um, attracting you at the moment that you're really just nerding out about i think it's all a lot of it's just around human connection um I, I've been researching serendipity a lot. Has been really fun. I wrote I wrote a piece on my newsletter about how to engineer serendipity, um, which is a part of community, but it's also not right. It's it's interesting to think about both how do you create how do you create engineer or how do you engineer serendipity in communities you create, but also like anyone can engineer serendipity in their own life and put themselves in a position to have more serendipity in their life. Um, so I've been going down that rabbit hole. Um, I've been going down that rabbit hole of uh, neural syncing that I mentioned earlier. It's I keep finding these different studies ser quite serendipitously. I keep coming across them without even looking for them about how connecting with people has a very physical impact on our brains and our bodies and our physiology. And um, I think that's that's fascinating. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be going deeper down that rabbit hole and writing on that topic on the newsletter soon. Um, even belonging is, is really fascinating to understand like the science behind it and what does it mean to belong and what are the different forms of belonging, right? When we talk about belonging and loneliness, there's actually different forms of loneliness I've discovered in the research. So, you know, I have an article in my brain of like, what is loneliness and like really diving into the science and the research behind these topics that people tend to only really look at the headlines. And it's actually interesting. And I'm, I've been very guilty of this. I think so many people spend their whole, spend so much time building communities in, in my network, in my world, but haven't taken the time to really understand the dynamics of human connection that go into like, why are these communities forming and, and how are they forming and what's going on in people's brains when they're forming. And so I, I get excited about being able to go deep on those topics and bring them to people who are doing this kind of work. Yeah, there's this amazing tool that I thought of as you were sharing that 
called Sublime. Have you mm-hmm. come across it? No. What's that? Uh, some people describe it as a read it later app, but it's not really that. And what happens is you save things, you capture mm-hmm. research notes, a quote, a link, and you create connections between them. And you can then see other people who are saving. You can make it private or public, but if it's public, you can then see other people who have saved similar things. And mm. maybe, so it makes going down the rabbit hole very interesting. Ooh, I should check yeah. that out. That sounds really you cool. You my my note-taking process is uh, very messy and I'm hesitant to add more tools, but that does sound really cool. Yeah, I'm having uh, their, their founder on the podcast. And actually, to me, this podcast is uh, part of it has, is my way of engineering serendipity. I mm-hmm. once interviewed somebody on this podcast back in the day and then ended up working for them full time for a year. And it was one of the most amazing mm. experiences culture wise. Um, I learned a lot in terms yeah. of how to create a people first organization you know, one link, one thing leads to another. So, um, I definitely would agree with you on that. I'm, I'm curious yeah. though, what, when you're, I just interviewed this person who had hired me, I, I brought him back on the show and, uh, recorded with him last week. He's going on sabbatical after his third, um, exit. Mm-hmm. And he, you just finished a one year sabbatical. I'm curious, like, what is the mindset? When you are on sabbatical, what are the challenges that you faced or was it a very welcome reprieve from creating? Hmm. It had waves. Um, I know I've, at first I felt almost euphoric just to have complete freedom. Um, so I, I also, just for context, I set some rules around my sabbatical. So um one decision I made was that I won't be going back to my job. A lot of people take sabbaticals. They'll say, all right, I'm going to take a six-month sabbatical, and then I'm coming back to my job. A lot of the time, those are paid sabbaticals, which would have been really nice to get paid, and I, I certainly could have explored that option. But to me, it was really important that there was nothing on the other end. Uh, I spent my whole life, you know, you from the moment you're born, you're put on this path, and... Um, you don't, you get very, very few options, uh, or very few times in life where there's no expectations, no one waiting on the other end, no, nothing you're working toward. Life is just open. Um, I realized I never really had that, you know, being a kid, you get close to that, but even then you're not, you're not free. You know, our kids aren't free. We tell them what to do. And so it was really important to not have anything on the other end. I also set a rule that I wouldn't set any goals. A lot of people will do sabbaticals and say, all right, this is my chance. I'm going to start writing poetry. I'm going to start painting. I'm going to take up a new hobby. I'm going to read a lot of books. Nothing. I had no goals, no obligations, no point I was trying to reach, no new hobbies, unless in that moment I felt like doing it, I could do it, but there was no expectation. Um, I also turned off social media. I logged off all social media, Twitter, Facebook. If people still use Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. No, I deleted my account years ago. <laughs> I think I'm, I, I could probably do it now. I used to need it for work. but yeah. um, And so I turned off social media. And that was, that was really profound for me because I'm an addict. I use social media very much for work and 
Um, and I really disconnected from all that kind of inflowing information. And so I was just spending my days like wandering, you know, I'd drop my kids off at school and I'd be like, I feel like biking today. And I would bike to the ocean in San Francisco. And on the way I found a nice pond. So I sat next to it and an old lady was sitting there and I ended up talking to her for two and a half hours one day. And it was just very open and fluid. And that felt really beautiful. Um, of course, you know, over time, that euphoria started to fade and I, the questions start coming to my mind of like, all right, like, what am I going to do next? You know, what, what do I want to be? Uh, do I want to try something new? Do I want to go back to community? How do I want to spend my time? Um, and so those, those started flowing through my mind and I just tried to be aware of them and, you know, sit with those thoughts and ask the questions and kind of go through what seemed like the answers at the time without putting any pressure on it. Um, it, it went honestly pretty smoothly for me. Like it, it certainly had anxiety around when those questions would come up, but, um, we, we did a month long road trip with my family and we stopped in national parks and we were just going everywhere in the country. And then we got to New York. We, so we moved from San Francisco to New York during that sabbatical. And so we were staying with my family for a while while we found a place to live. And so it was like a lot, we did a lot, despite me not having any goals or any obligations, we did a lot. And so I felt busy still. And that I think kept my mind at peace a little bit. It was, it wasn't until we like got our apartment in New York and settled down and we weren't doing a lot that then there, I started getting real antsy and like craving doing something and craving building, craving, creating something. And that was a beautiful feeling for me because I was burned out before my sabbatical. I it was a long time where I wasn't feeling like creating anymore. I just didn't have the energy. I just nothing was bringing me joy at work, and, and the things I was creating would just felt exhausting. And all I wanted was just to stop. And so, being able to feel a natural pull towards work, towards creating, doing something again. That that was really exciting. That that to me was a sign that my sabbatical was effective um, at helping me reset and helping me drop everything and figure out what were the things that were bringing me energy or that could be bringing me energy, and what are the things that like nope that was definitely sucking me dry, and I don't want to add that back to my life. And when I came back and started working again. I designed my life very intentionally. I designed my calendar. I designed what I would say yes and no to very clearly around those things that I was able to reflect on over that time. So does that mean no more social media? I went back to social media. I had better boundaries. Yes, I did. Um, But I I think I've done it with a lot more intentionality. Um, Not perfect. I definitely get into stages where i find myself scrolling and comparing and it's making me feel down again and when that happens i do a reset i log off again i take a week off um i always i'm I'm a big fan of pausing your habits even if they feel like they're not going poorly pausing them every once in a while and, and resetting um i use social media to grow my newsletter primarily and to you know i'm trying to the path I'm on as like a professional creator is is what I'm experimenting and testing now. And I think it's important for me to be creating content on social media in order to grow that audience. It helps me 
um, get my content out there and earn an income. So I did go back to social media, but um, my calendar is delightful now. One thing that was burning me out is I would wake up every day and my day would be set for me. I hated that. I hated that. I hated not being able to make decisions or have fluidity in my day because every hour was already scheduled in meetings. And there were Zoom meetings. I hated that. I was getting so burned out by sitting looking at someone on a camera all day, every day. And now I do that, but only for consultants and for interviews like this and for like very few select calls. And it doesn't exhaust me now. Like I'm in, I enjoy this conversation because I didn't, yeah. I'm not overdoing it. Um, and so I say no to most meetings. I default to helping people. If someone wants to pick my brain or ask for advice, I say, of course, very happy to help. Can you send me your questions over DM and I'll, I'll help here. And uh, maybe we can do a call later if needed, but I, you know, I prefer to keep it over text and people are very happy to do that. It turns out. And I don't, I keep my mornings completely open. I only have a two hour block three days a week where I take any calls or any meetings and the rest is open, fluid writing time and creating time. Um, I only work four days a week. For a while, it was three days a week. I just added my fourth because I was craving it. I wanted to do a little more. And my kids went to full-time daycare. My wife went back to work. So I had the time now. Fridays, I do a big hike every Friday. I take a me day and I just go into the woods somewhere in the Hudson Valley in New York. And I do a three to four hour hike. And that's like medicine for me. It's I feel completely rejuvenated after that. And so designing my life around what I know brings me energy and is healthy for me. I've just enjoyed creating. I've enjoyed, I'm like starting to want to connect with people again. Like I feel renewed. I have a question around that, how it relates to this book. This book is all about our needs, right? And as you were talking about having this craving to create and getting these questions of what am I going to do again now? What am I going to do next? And what direction am I going to go in, et cetera? I'm curious. What need do you think those questions and that craving is trying to fulfill? Is it contribution? Is it meaning? I mean, it must be different for everybody, right? Everybody wants to work for different reasons. But in this case, when you were feeling those things, what need do you think your body was trying to fulfill for you? It's a great question. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's something I think about a lot. I think my opinions and my understanding of concepts like purpose and legacy have changed a lot. I think a lot of my early years was very much about purpose. Like I'm trying to change the world and very much about legacy. Like I want to be remembered. And, you know, legacy is a scam. It's complete bullshit because no one's going to remember you after a few generations. Even if they do, by that time, your story is going to be so bastardized, so evolved distorted. to fit whatever narrative. It's going to be completely distorted. And so, like, it's not your what you do today isn't going to define what that legacy is. The legacy will be dictated by what people choose to say. You know, how many people from 100, 200, 300 years ago do we misquote constantly all the time now? If, if they were alive, they'd probably be like, I would never say that. Like, and we're like, yeah, you know, Thomas Edison's really famous for this quote. And so legacy's crock of shit. Um purpose it's 
you know, I, I think becoming a parent changes your perspective on purpose. Like I want to, I think more about like the type of person I am and how I show up every day rather than like, did I change the world or solve world hunger or have this massive impact and not to take away from people who are working towards those goals. Um, I may work towards those goals too. Like loneliness is something that's really interesting to me and taps into my own curiosity. It's something I feel like I can bring a lot of energy to. And so, sure, that's a purpose I, I feel like I can work toward. It aligns with my morals and the values that I have. Great. I'm, but I'm not going to say like my mission is to solve loneliness in the world. It, it just feels insincere to me because it's, it's, it's not why I do it. I, you know, I do it because it's, I'm curious about it. It's somewhere where I feel useful and I can help. Sounds like I contribution. Yeah, it's something around contribution. I think we all want to feel useful. We all want to feel valued by the people in our communities. Right? It's, it's part of what actually goes into a feeling of belonging. It's um, there's a, the six provisions of social health is a paper I'm reading right now, and one of them is just feeling of use to others. So yeah. What's beautiful about contribution is that you don't seek something in return. Yeah, I mean, we said at the beginning, you know, I I love hearing from my newsletter subscribers when they respond to me. It gives me a feeling of like I'm I like the confirmation that I'm contributing. That's good. There's certainly ego in it as well, right? It would be a lie to say that you know I don't like having an audience and it doesn't make me feel good. I'm trying to get financial outcomes out of it because I'm trying to take care of myself and my family. I'm not trying to become filthy rich. I think that was probably another thing that influenced me more as it as when I was younger. And now, you know, I'd like to be comfortably wealthy, ideally, right? Like not have to worry about money, but I don't need an exorbitant amount of money. Um, so, you know, like everything else in life, I don't, I think the idea that like you should only give is, is not very realistic. I think it's a balance of figuring out what you need and what's going to bring you fulfillment and safety and joy. And, and I think contribution is something that brings you joy and humans are wired to serve ourselves by serving each other. And so, you know, finding that balance and filling everyone else's bucket so that it fills yours up too. That's, yeah, I think that's absolutely. I think when I reply to your newsletter, I think it's more like a, a a celebration of, I appreciated this. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So, um, while I, I definitely share your, this is something that I've spoken on the podcast about with other guests is um, finding that balance between giving and also making sure I get what I need, which is a baseline financial security. Um, and then other than that, when I grab my phone to post on TikTok, make sure that it's a message that I'm doing that I'm putting out there because I want to contribute to life, that I want to contribute to other people. Cause I, there's this one quote that drives me, which is, you know, heal your wounds so you won't bleed on people who didn't cut you. And so I think mm-hmm. that's what's behind all of my work. And so I'm like, okay, if I get something back from this, that's welcome. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to do is hopefully contribute to healing some wounds. And then there's a, a long journey ahead for me, but that is what drives me, you know? So I think there's, we all have an ego. We would not uh, subsist with, without one, right? We, we need it. We need it. 
it keeps life, um, it keeps us going and it allows us to survive. The, the constant battle with how do I make this sustainable where the ego is not taking over? Um, I think it's where the fun is, you know, where you, where you find the bat, the, that, that zone that feels good to you and also feels good to the people that you're contributing to. So mm-hmm. anyway, I, I do think that you do a wonderful job of that. You know, I'm a big fan. I have your newsletter. If anybody else wants to sign up for it and drop into your inbox with all the replies, if they follow my example, where can they find you? Yeah, please do. It's uh, davidspinks.com. And yeah, send me all your replies. It gives me life. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I will try to, I tell you, I, I try to space them out, but in every single one, I just find something um, really not just worth reading, but. It's almost like a little bit of Huberman. I'm like, all right, all right, but how do I apply this? You know, wow, how do that's I, how the do greatest I compliment this? I've ever received. <laughs> if all I could right. be the Huberman for uh, social health, that would be pretty cool. There you go. No more positioning work needed. You just <laughs> figured out what you want to be next. You are welcome, David Sphinx. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I just got to become a professor at Stanford for. Uh, to get my credibility boost and we'll be, we'll basically be the same. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Spinks, community expert. Really think you should check out his newsletter at davidspinks.com. Check out his book at the business of belonging. And I really look forward to what comes next for David. And you can sign up for my own newsletter and find all the show notes at marcella.co. That's M-A-R-C-E-L-L-A dot C-O. I'll see you there. And you'll find there, I just launched a new online course called Courageous Conversations, which is all about helping you to master even the most difficult interactions. Anyway, thank you again for listening to The Process Podcast. I'll be back next week with a new episode. See you then.